there and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with yet another hour of geeking news, views and reviews. We've got a whole power-packed hour for you this evening. Unless, of course, you're listening in the morning, which you can do. Whatever time of day you're listening, we've got an hour of geeky power coming right at you. Nah, that's not going to work. No, sorry, I just can't do the whole DJ thing. We've got a good hour, though. So, you know, settle down with the beverage of your choice. And unless you're driving, in which case, keep your eye on the road. What are you doing? You know, listening, because we've got some good stuff coming. And we're going to start with something that I wish I'd talked about last week. But the wretched thing dropped uh, literally five minutes after I'd finished doing the recording. And I nearly went back and edited the whole thing. And then I thought, nah, I'll just talk about it next week. This is because I'm incredibly lazy. Also busy, but lazy, mostly. Anyway, The Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has a new trailer. Which, let's be honest, if you care, you've already seen. But you haven't heard what I think about it. So let's correct that omission, shall we? Right, first of all, it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a Guardians of the Galaxy movie directed by James Gunn. Of course, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, do I need to blow the spoiler horn? For... No, I don't need to blow the spoiler horn for trailers. I'm, I'm not doing it. It does look as though there is an element of seriousness in the movie as well. We get to see what we presume is a young Rocket Raccoon before he becomes Rocket Raccoon. When he was an actual raccoon. There's also an otter who appears to be creature that went through the same experience that Rocket went through to make Rocket what Rocket is. And it is important, this is a dark side to Rocket Raccoon. As a character, he is usually played for laughs. He is a comedic character. I think Bill Mantlow created him to be that. But also, you know, he is the product of what appear to have been quite unpleasant experiments. That's the thing you can do with comedic characters. When you take a comedic character, one that we've always laughed along with, one that's always been loud and over the top, and you give them something serious, it amplifies that message, that seriousness. I mean, as an example, with Rocket Raccoon, if we go back to Endgame, when Tony Stark and Nebula return to the Avengers base, much is made of Tony's grief. Now, he's all like, I am. I am. Lost again. And he reunites with Pepper and it's all very sad. And we get the music and Robert Downey Jr. gets to act. And it's all very, you know, tear jerking and great. But for me, what was much more heartrending was just the moment when Rocket goes and sits down next to Nebula. And just puts his hand on hers and they just look at each other. And that's all they need. Because Robert Downey Jr. is human and has been played. Yes, Downey Jr. plays Tony Stark as a bit of, uh, you know, there's a bit of a comedic turn to him. But, you know, he's been shown to be, you know, a human person with feelings and emotions and stuff. Whereas Rocket is a talking raccoon. And just that that moment really underlined for me the, the, the power of emotion in that scene. Beyond that, I think what we're going to get is more of what we've come to expect. I mean, there's a, a, a moment in at the beginning of the trailer when they're on a an alien planet. Everyone is, all the aliens at least, is some kind of version of a cute, fluffy animal. There's a guy who looks a bit like a rabbit and so on and so on. And then one little girl throws a ball towards the Guardians and Drax picks it up 
throws it back at the girl and just flattens her. And, you know, Pete's like, seriously, come on, dude. And that's been Drax since Drax was introduced. He's big. He's clumsy. He doesn't really get other people. And, you know, we're going to get more of that. Fine. Brilliant. Wonderful. Uh, We get badass rocket. We certainly get that. As exemplified by this bit. We have been running our whole lives. Pete, I'm done running. Oh, yeah. Kind of excited for it. Really am. To answer a question that has occurred to a couple of you, at least, why am I talking about the trailer for a film that's not out until the summer when I could be reviewing the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, which is live now, available to stream on Disney+. Plus. Well, there's a very good reason I'm not reviewing it. I haven't watched it yet, because it's a Christmas show and it's not Christmas yet. I know, I know, I know it's December. I know that... Christmas started in September before the kids went back to school. I know this, but just because I know it doesn't mean I have to acknowledge it. I'm not doing anything Christmassy. I'm not even starting my what will become my annual rewatch of Hawkeye. Haven't even starting that for at least another week. Let's get the strictly semi-finals out of the way before I even think about Christmas. Okay? Okay. Good. I mean, I will be reviewing it. I've got a whole big Christmas episode planned for, you know, Christmas. So what else has been happening in the geeky news this week? Well, again, this is a story that broke actually last week, just as I was putting last week's little rant to bed. And it's a story that I'm sad about because bad things shouldn't happen to good people. In fact, bad things shouldn't happen at all. But if bad things do happen, there should be a system in place to deal with them. And in this instance, there is not. So the news broke late last week that the great comics writer, Peter David, a guy who has written The Hulk, he's he's written Justice, he's written The X-Men. Basically, if it's a really good comics property, there's a very good chance that Peter David's written on it. And there's a very good chance that he's been a huge influence on it. Well, he's been ill for some time with uh, kidney problems, I believe. But now he's had some strokes, he's had a heart attack, and he's in the hospital. And of course, he's American, which means there's no healthcare. Obviously, I don't know the status of Peter David's medical insurance, but he's been a freelance writer for quite a lot of his career. There's a good chance he really doesn't have very good or very much health insurance at all. So his friends and family have put up a GoFundMe, uh, which you can Google and donate to if you like. It just makes me sad that this kind of thing happens. We have the ongoing situation with Bill Mantlow, the creator of Rocket Raccoon, who requires lifetime care following a car accident about 30 years ago. I I say car accident. It was a hit and run. I mean, you know, Mantlow had nothing to do with it. Uh, And his his brother, who is his full time carer, has had to ask, you know, do go fundies and stuff to pay for his care several times. And. Do you know what? Again, I, I keep having this rant, but Marvel Comics in particular keeps talking about itself as a family. And I would say that people like Peter David and Bill Mantlow should be very much part of that family. And family does not allow people to struggle in that way. And, you know, I it, just some help from the massive corporation that is Disney, which has all the money 
I mean, all of it. There's a reason no one's got any money. It's because Disney's got it all. They could help. I appreciate they would be setting a precedent. There are ways around that. But yeah, so that's not good news. So let's talk about something less important. Let's talk about social media because, you know, we're geeks. And where we are on social media is important. Uh, this show doesn't have social media of its own. Uh, the shop, which this show is sort of recorded out of, does. Um, Destination Venus is on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And we're on Instagram. Because, of course, we are. Twitter, as you may know, is continuing to spiral into ultimate oblivion. I, I can't see at this point that Twitter is particularly salvageable, which is a shame because I really like Twitter. I know it's always been a hell site, but if you use the block button well, you can live in a perfectly happy little bubble on Twitter full of people that agree with you and talk about things you want to talk about. In my case, comics. It's becoming less good. Shall we, shall we go with that? It's becoming much harder to live a happy little life on Twitter. And the app itself is getting a little glitchy. It's almost as though hiring all the people who know how to code wasn't a good idea. Anyway, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, lots of people have been trying to find somewhere else to go. Now, Mastodon did the running for quite a while. The problem with Mastodon that I have is that, my goodness, it's complicated. And people keep telling me it's not as complicated as it looks. And I keep thinking, I don't care. It looks too complicated. I've got things to do. And so I keep not setting up the shop on Mastodon. What I did do was open a Hive account. And again, as mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I really liked Hive. It worked very much like Twitter and Instagram do. It had all of the advantage of both. And honestly, apart from the fact that it was quite slow, none of the drawbacks of either that I could see. Uh, it turns out there were some security issues on Hive. Now, if you look at the history of Hive, that's hardly surprising. The whole thing was being run by a couple of people, one of whom had only learned to code in 2019. So until the muskrat bought Twitter, it only had you know a very small number of people on it. And it was, you know, presumably quite easy to get and quite easy to control. And, you know, security wasn't really an issue because I'm guessing that most of the people on Hive knew each other in real life until fairly recently. So, you know, security, less of an issue. And then suddenly the muskrat bought Twitter. People started looking for somewhere to go because Twitter was looking less and less viable. And to be honest, less and less somewhere you want to hang out. And somebody mentioned Hive and... Certainly the whole of comics Twitter pretty much descended on the place in a couple of weeks, less than that. Now, that must have been a heck of a thing for a very small social media concern to deal with. As I record this, and by the time you listen to this, the situation may well have changed. I hope it has. As I record this, Hive is down and has been down for a couple of days. I'm recording this bit on Monday, the 5th of December for context. Um. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. They say they're down to do some upgrades, do some security upgrades and, and, and stuff. And that's great. You know, if Hive comes back on stream, I will be very, very happy indeed because I really liked Hive and I liked the vibe that it had. But I'm old enough to have been around since before there was social media. I have seen up and coming social media sites arrive, burn very brightly and then burn out very quickly. I hope that's not the case with Hive. 
Uh, I, I guess I'll keep you informed. Given the way I record the show these days, there might even be an update later in the show. On with the news! And we'll round off the news segment with another trailer, because of course the trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Indiana Jones 5 they're calling it, has also dropped. Now, I don't know quite why they're calling it Indiana Jones 5, because as far as I'm aware there are only three Indiana Jones movies. There's the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I think they now refer to as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then there's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is less good I think it's fair to say, although you've got to love short round. Uh, and then there's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, starring Sean Connery as Harrison Ford's dad, which is hilarious because Sean Connery is about two years older than Harrison Ford. Then there's been nothing until now. I mean, I, 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 somebody made a fan film, I think, with a refrigerator in the desert or some nonsense like that. But that wasn't really an Indiana Jones film. Um, I think she had a, she, was Sheila LaBeouf in it. Something like I mean, getting Shia LaBeouf for a fan film, that's really cool. But, you know, it's still fanfic. But now we have Harrison Ford back as Indiana Jones, set in the 1960s, which is good, because that means we've kind of aged Indy up in real time, which I like. You know, none of this de-aging nonsense. I, I mean, there may be some in the film if they want to do flashbacks, but, you know, I, I, th I think... Face, who played Agent Coulson, I, I think... Him in Captain Marvel demonstrates why de-aging technology is not necessarily great for hanging an entire movie on. So we've got an old indie, a properly old indie. And that's credible. You know, he's an academic. He's quite capable of still being a history stroke archaeology professor at whatever university that's supposed to be into the 1960s. He can do that. That's fine. The leaping about and stuff that he does in the trailer. OK, I can suspend my disbelief for that. It's an action movie. Of course I can. And also it's indie. And it should be stated here. Indiana Jones is the best movie franchise. Actually, I don't need to qualify it. It's just the best movie franchise. I mean, you know, we can talk about Star Wars. We can talk about Alien. We can talk about lots of really good movie franchises. But the drawback that all of those movie franchises have is that none of them are Indiana Jones. I have to say, I mean... <sighs> It's not a very long trailer. There's not a lot to it, but everything in it looks good. We get Indy being the professor in the, the, the lecture hall. We get Indy jumping around on top of trains. We get Indy using the bullwhip. And most of all, we get Indy punching Nazis, which is one of the reasons Indiana Jones is the greatest movie franchise of all time. It has a very straightforward approach to the Nazis. Nazis are the bad guys, and they are always, always, always punchable. I'm not entirely sure what Nazis are doing in the 1960s, except they did exist in the 1960s, and they still exist now. So clearly they must have still existed in the 1960s. I don't know why we fought a war about it and everything. We even won it. But still, somehow, Nazis keep hanging around. But that's cool if they can be villains in a movie for Indiana Jones to punch. What I really liked in the trailer, though, was... If you remember, and I'm not blowing the spoiler horn for this, I'm about to spoiler a bit for Raiders of the Lost Ark, but Raiders of the Lost Ark is over 41 years old. It was released in 1981. So, seriously, if you haven't already seen it, I don't know what to say to you. I am not blowing the spoiler horn for a 41-year-old movie. I'm just not. But there is a great bit in Raiders of the Lost Ark where 
we're in Egypt and Indy is running away from something. I genuinely can't. I've not seen Raiders for a couple of years. I can't remember exactly what the chase is all about, but Indy's on the, on the, on the run through the streets and the crowd parts. And in front of him, there is a guy in full, full on sort of robe type stuff. And he's got a scimitar and he swooshes the scimitar around in a whole elaborate thing as a challenge to Indy. And Indy just pulls out his pistol and shoots him. It's, it's an iconic moment in Indiana Jones. I mean, as it ha- and you probably know this story, but as it happens, it wasn't supposed to happen. There was supposed to be a sort of really elaborate bullwhip sword duel, which Indy would win after lots of sort of swashbuckling heroics. Uh, but he wasn't feeling well that day, wasn't Harrison Ford? Uh, I seem to remember he had food poisoning or something. But he didn't, you know, just wasn't up for shooting the whole whip thing. Uh, so they just did that instead, which is hilarious. And it's in this trailer, or at least there's a nice nod to that in this trailer, because we get to see Indy standing in a room at the end of like a big boardroom table with, you know, surrounded you know, with loads of people. I don't know whether they're villains or what. I'm presuming they're villains. And Indy is like cracking the bullwhip over their heads and going, get back, get back. And he keeps cracking the whip over their heads and they keep flinching. Uh, and then almost on, you know, there's, there's like a little nod between all of them and they just pull out machine guns and pistols and stuff and start shooting at Indy, who has, then has to hide behind the table. Clear reference to our, our swordsman thing. Uh, and it made me giggle. So that's good. And that's important because you do need that level of humour in an indie movie. Yeah, there's got to be some yucks along the way. So all in all, it's about a minute and a half long, this trailer. So it doesn't give a lot away. What it does give away, I approve of. So there you go. Obviously, I have no doubt that the producers of the movie were just waiting to see what I thought. And now they can rest easy. Oh, and it just occurs to me, we haven't mentioned the Doctor's new companion. Now, this again is not breaking news. You know about this. Uh, I missed it. I completely missed it. I haven't watched Children in Need for some considerable number of years. And so I didn't find out about this until it surfaced on Twitter. But that with some fanfare, they revealed the Doctor's new companion on this year's Children in Nietzsche. Not not the next Doctor, because that's David Tennant. And he will be hanging out with Catherine Tate again, uh, presumably as Donna Noble. Are they actually announced that it's the Doctor and Donna? It's Catherine Tate. That doesn't necessarily mean she's Donna. Anyway. Once David Tennant has finished his final comeback tour as the Doctor, we're going to get a proper new Doctor, who will be played by the sex education star, Shuti Gatwa. Now, I don't know anything about Shuti Gatwa, except that he's been in sex education, which is to show that I have not yet seen, in spite of the fact that Gillian Anderson is in it. I know, who would have thought? If you told mid-90s me that there was a show with Gillian Anderson in it that I hadn't seen, I would have looked at you rather quizzically. But then I haven't seen The Crown either, so there you go. There has obviously been much speculation about who will be joining him in the TARDIS, and now we know. Gatoire's Doctor will be accompanied on his adventures in space and time by Ruby Sunday, who is going to be played by Coronation Street's Millie Gibson. Now, I have not watched Coronation Street since I used to go to see my grandma after school while my mum was at work when I was about 11. So I have no idea 
who Millie Gibson is. Uh, she's very young. I think she's the youngest companion ever. Indeed, and I haven't fact-checked this, but uh, the Doctor Who podcast Verity commented uh, in its review of uh, Millie Gibson's announcement that uh, when they announced Billy Piper was going to be Rose Tyler, the ninth Doctor's first companion, well, only companion, really, Billy Gibson was not yet born. As I say, I have not fact-checked that, but if it's true, it's horrifying. I am very, very, very old indeed. Uh, now, I have no particular comment to make. Uh, apparently, she's very popular on Coronation Street. Again, I would not know. But just as an observation, and I'm not the first person to make this comment, so you know this is not original on my part, but if you were to take... Rose Tyler, played by Billy Piper, and Clara Oswald, as played by Jenna Coleman, and kind of feed them into, feed their images into a computer and meld them together, you'd get Millie Gibson. Now, I, I, I make this not as a, as a comment that this is a good or a bad thing. It's just an observation. Frankly, I doubt that that was done deliberately, if anything. If Russell T. Davis had noticed that, I suspect it would have counted against her. But there we go. Uh, I have no further comment to make except to note that it has happened. I am interested, very interested, to see their chemistry on set. From what I've seen of them, you know, having gone back on YouTube and looked at stuff, they both seem to be incredibly charismatic people, which is probably a good thing. I don't know. Do I want the Doctor and the, co the, co the companion constantly effervescing off my screen? Maybe. Maybe. Don't know. As always with Doctor Who, I am reserving my judgment completely until I actually see it. Because I've been wrong so many times about so many Doctors and so many companions that I, I, I don't, I simply don't have preconceived opinions anymore. I do, however, trust Russell T. Davies. He's proved that he can do this. He was a great showrunner first time round. I have no reason to believe he won't be a great show in a second time round. Still, actually, genuinely, a little bit nervous about Disney's involvement. But again, we will have to see how that pans out. If it's a disaster, it's a disaster. But, yeah. And with that, we will move on. Because it's time to see what's happening in... And we'll start with the Artemis One mission because it's going well, folks. At time of recording, which is Monday morning, the 5th of December. So by the time this goes out, something terrible could have happened, in which case we'll address it at the end of the show. But for right now, it's all good. The Orion capsule containing the two mannequins whose names I can't remember and Sean the Sheep and Snoopy is on its way back to Earth. The rush scheduled to arrive back and splash down in the Pacific Ocean on the 11th of December, which is this coming Sunday, if you're listening to this the day it drops. So we will be keeping our fingers crossed for that. You can, if you go to YouTube and just search on YouTube for um, the Orion capsule um, or the Artemis 1 mission, uh, you can find live footage uh, shot from the, uh, the Orion capsule, uh, which at the moment is showing a picture of the moon, because that's what the Orion capsule's cameras can see right now. There are no real updates uh, that, that are exciting, at least. Which, I have to say, is a good thing. Because the only time space missions really get exciting 
is when they're doing something that's never been done before, and Artemis 1 was never going to do that, or something goes wrong, like, for example, Apollo 13. And whilst there would be no lives at risk if something went wrong with Artemis 1, the entire program would be at risk. And we're not really in favour of that. It is. Everything is going well, which is a really positive sign that the Artemis project as a whole will continue to move forward. The only dark cloud on the horizon that I can see at the moment is Elon Musk. And I hate to bring him up again because he gets far more attention than he deserves anyway. But Musk is currently very publicly imploding all over Twitter. Love him or hate him, what's going on on Twitter right now and the kinds of comments he's making, it's not good. It's not a good look. Now, that matters because Musk is so closely identified with all of the things he's involved with. The Tesla stock price, for example, took a real tumble last week when Musk began to come just a little bit unhinged online. It's it's recovered slightly, but you know you can see from that that there is a knock-on effect. Now, it won't affect the stock price of SpaceX because SpaceX is not publicly traded, but he is very, very clearly at the top, at the helm at SpaceX. Now, if he becomes a person that the people involved in Artemis begin to think maybe is a little too unstable, maybe not too trustworthy, that could have a serious effect on the Artemis program. Because at the moment, the only game in town for Artemis to get from lunar orbit to the surface of the moon is the lander that's going to be based on SpaceX's Starship rocket, which is a problem because that does not yet exist. And there is no current alternative. And right about now, I'm beginning to feel perhaps less cocksure about my criticisms of Bezos, who, if you recall, sued NASA when NASA said they weren't interested in his design for a lunar lander, which, to be fair, at the time NASA rejected it, didn't exist. I mean, not that the lander didn't exist, the design did not exist. Bezos's company, Blue Origin, would have been starting with a blank sheet of paper, whereas SpaceX actually had you know, a functional design, at least. You know, something that physically existed that was going to be modified. But, nevertheless, it is looking increasingly unwise for NASA to have put all of its lunar lander eggs in one basket, particularly perhaps that basket. And and I'm sad to say this, because whatever I think of Musk, and, and regular listeners will know, it's not much. SpaceX is actually a really effective organisation. I don't know how much day-to-day input Musk has with SpaceX. I'm guessing it's not that much, simply because SpaceX is in Texas and he seems to be hanging around Twitter offices all day now. And, you know, Tesla is in California as well. Whatever involvement Musk has with SpaceX, it's clearly working. You know, I mean, I can't think of a more successful space organisation. I mean, I, I include national space agencies in this. To, to have come from literally nowhere to where they are now, basically the, the only Western organisation that can put people into space is SpaceX. It's a remarkable achievement. And I really, really, really hope that everything that's going on with Musk right now does not stuff that up. If it does, then that's going to cause very serious delays in Artemis. Because if your project is 
specifically designed to put boots on the ground on the moon, and you have no way of getting those boots on the moon, game over, basically. You know, they can get everything else that they are in control of right. They can get the spacesuit, which we don't currently have. They can get the lunar habitations, which we don't currently have. They could get the lunar rovers, which, again, we don't currently have. But NASA could get all of that sorted out. If they don't have a lander, they can't land on the moon. So fingers crossed for that. As I say, this is pure speculation on my part at the moment. Nothing bad is happening at SpaceX that I am aware of. It's just the mood music coming out of Musk's general group of companies is, shall we say, less positive than it's been for a while. And that's a, that's a worry. And so we will move on to happier things. And in particularly happier things, I'd like you to go outside on a nice clear night in the next few days and look up. The moon is very bright at the moment. Uh, it's probably not full now as you're listening to this, but it's still quite big in the sky. It's still very bright. And so it's going to wash out quite a lot of the more interesting stars and all of that kind of stuff. But that's fine, because that's not what I want you to look at. Now, I want you to look towards the eastern horizon, look reasonably high, and you will be able to see, even on a night when the moon is very bright, you will be able to see an, a sort of reddish coloured star. Well, that's not a star. That, my friends, is Mars. Shining more brightly than it has for a while. It's moving into opposition with Earth, which means that it's on the other side of the sun from us. Which means it's in full sunlight from our perspective. Which means it's really bright. If you can get some magnification on that bad boy, you will be able to see all sorts. A decent sized home telescope will certainly show you the polar ice cap it will certainly allow you to see um what have in the past been referred to as canals they're not don't get too excited but you will be able to see features on the surface of the red planet it's a really interesting object to look at in the night sky not perhaps spectacular as jupiter with its four visible moons or saturn which is utterly spectacular with the rings, but if the rings rings are tilted in the right direction. But Mars, Mars is special anyway, isn't it? Because it is, first of all, it's the planet we could actually live on. Conceivably, there are ways that even with modern technology, we could probably just about survive on Mars. I'm not recommending it, not recommending going anytime soon, but we could. And that is fascinating. It's also the only planet that we know of uh, that is inhabited solely by robots there are several there although some of them have died is just tantalizing so go and check that out if you can we've had a few clear nights i know i i was surprised there may be more uh, if you can get you can get some binoculars on mars you will see some interesting detail but now i think it's probably time to move on take a little step back towards the news because i am now everything you've just heard was recorded on monday and tuesday uh, of this week let's say the 5th and 6th of december um it is now as i record this the 8th of december this is thursday the day that this show will actually drop 
And there's been some breaking news overnight. You've probably seen this. It's, well, hmm. It's a rumour at the moment. It's not substantiated. Nothing is cast in stone or set in steel. Can you set things in steel? Not sure. Anyway, nothing is solid yet. But this does come from The Hollywood Reporter, which generally speaking knows its onions in regards to showbiz and film news. So when The Hollywood Reporter tells me that it's all kicking off again at DC, I tend to guardedly accept what they're saying. And when I say it's all kicking off, it's all not kicking off, I think, is where we're at. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter is reporting, as is its want, that um, James Gunn and Peter Safran, who are the new studio heads at DC Studios, are in the final stages of putting together their multi-year plan. That's in heavy quotes. Ahead of a presentation they have to give next week to the Warner Brothers Discovery CEO, David Zaslav. Now, Zaslav is the guy who has been taking an axe to pretty much everything at DC Studios type stuff and HBO and other channels. He's the guy who is behind the axing of a lot of DC shows. Uh, Stargirl's Gone, uh, the Batman cartoon animated thing is not happening now, although they are shopping that around. He's pulled the plug on a lot of things. Controversially, I mean, a lot of people, and I would list myself among that number, a lot of people aren't happy with the direction he's taking the company. We'll see. Uh, but things are beginning to leak out about what Gunn and Safran are cooking up. And the first casualty appears to be Wonder Woman. It is known that Patty Jenkins, who made the first two Wonder Woman movies, has been pitching an idea for Wonder Woman 3 at Warner, and that there was some degree of enthusiasm about it. Uh, even very recently, I think last week, Gal Gadot was tweeting about what a privilege it had been to play the character and that you know there was more to come kind of thing. Well, apparently there isn't now. Uh, if what The Hollywood Reporter is saying is to be believed, Wonder Woman has been axed rather unceremoniously. It's also suggested that Jason Momoa is now done as Aquaman and he will not be reprising that role again. Speculation too, that that might be because Gunn wants him as Lobo, which again is interesting. If you're not familiar with the character of Lobo, he's a big, huge barbarian alien type guy who uses made-up bad language, um, which, frankly, sounds more offensive than the profane language it is replacing. Uh, he will refer to people as uh, bastitches, for instance, um, and uses the word funt a lot. And, yeah, use your imagination. You can figure out where those words came from. Not exactly a high-concept character, I think it's fair to say, but very popular with fans and, rather more importantly, fun, which is something that has not been happening in the DC extended universe for a while does also seem to be the final nail in the coffin of any hopes that people had that the Snyderverse will be extended or allowed to continue it doesn't appear that that is on the cards at all 
Now, speaking personally, I do not care about that one little bit because I didn't like any of Snyder's movies in the DC Extended Universe. However, I am aware that other people did, and if you did, I can see that you might be quite miffed about this. And I don't know what to tell you. This is how the game is played. This is how things work. Love it or loathe it, the Snyderverse was part of the old strategy for DC movies, which was put together by the old boss at DC movies. That boss is now gone. And what tends to happen, for better or worse, when new people come in to things like this, is they they scrap everything that the old guard did. And as the new brooms coming in, they sweep extremely clean. And that seems to be what's happening. No firm word on what's happening with Henry Cavill as Superman. Now, he has been quite vocal about the fact that he is back as Superman. He is coming back as Superman. There was a lot said about a return to a sort of brighter, cheerier, more Richard Donner-like Superman, uh, channeling the energy of Christopher Reeve and the 1977 Superman movie, which I am here for. I would love to see Cavill do that. It doesn't follow that James Gunn is here for that. And I don't know. Now, that's looking shaky, as is Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Black Adam. It's not looking as likely now that there will be a sequel to that. It's done better than some reports would have it. It's not done as well, I don't think, as Dwayne Johnson would have it. And I don't think it's done well enough to make the suits at at, at Warner Discovery all that keen on a sequel. So, as I say, none of this is confirmed. All of this is speculation. Uh, We will find out more in the next couple of weeks. But that does seem to be very much the way that the wind is blowing over at Warner Brothers. And I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed by that news. Also, still no clarity on what is happening with Ezra Miller's The Flash. Uh, Is that going to be released now or is that just going to be quietly dropped? Well, you can't drop it quietly now, but you know what I mean. I don't know. It all seems like a big, fat mess. And that's disheartening. So let's stop thinking about it and talk about something better, something more inspiring. Let's talk about another wonderful woman of science. Yes, I am going to throw in the semi-regular caveat that this is a wonderful woman who has much to do with engineering as she does about science. But I haven't got a section called Wonderful Women of Engineering. So there you go. And her achievements, or at least the achievements I want to focus on here, were very much science and science adjacent. So I want you to come with me back in time to 1914. It was quite a busy year. Uh, I want particularly to take you to November the 9th, 1914, to Austria, more specifically to Vienna, a place which means nothing to me, but is tremendously important in this story. Lots is happening on November the 19th in Vienna, but for two particular people, uh, a guy from Lemberg, uh, now Lviv in Ukraine, called Emil, and his wife, Trudy, or Trude, uh, who was actually originally from Budapest. It was a very important day in the life of those two people, because that was the day when Trude gave birth to a daughter. 
who they called, and I'm not kidding, Hedvig Eva Maria Keisler. And yes, I appreciate my name is Reginald. I am in no position to take the mickey out of other people's names. But seriously, Hedvig, worry if her name is unfamiliar to you, because Hedvig Keisler was not the name under which this woman became better known. And she did indeed become very, very well known. Um, She started out dabbling in film in front of the camera, got herself a small part in a film called Money on the Street, and then a very small speaking part in a film called Storm in a Waterglass. Money on the Street was made in 1930. Storm in a Waterglass was made in 1931. The producer of those films, Max Reinhardt, then cast young Hedvig in a play called The Weaker Sex, uh, which really, really impressed him. And so he brought her back to early 1930s Berlin. Now, it was all kicking off in Berlin in the 1930s, in good ways and bad. And young Hedvig Keisler began to make a bit of her career for herself, uh, both in film and on the stage. When she was 18, in 1933, uh, she was given the lead in a film called Ecstasy. Um, Ecstas, ex- I can't, I was about to try and tell you what they were called in German and Czech, uh, and I can't actually pronounce that. Uh, so let's just call it Ecstasy. Uh, she played the neglected young wife of an indifferent older man. Uh, and the film and her performance became both celebrated and notorious um, because it showed uh, young Hedvig's face in the throes of passion, shall we say, uh, as well as some close ups and uh, sort of brief nude scenes, which in 1933 was, well, it was pretty out there. Now, Young Hedvig claimed that she was duped by the director and the producer who used high power telephoto lenses. So, you know, she thought she was being filmed from a distance and it wasn't close ups. Other people have contested that. And yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think I'm minded to believe her just because I've heard far too many horror stories about the way women were treated in early film and indeed modern film. So. That was a very negative experience. She, you know, she did not enjoy that. But also, you know, things were getting a little bit tricky in Berlin and Germany in general. Um, Hedwig was of Jewish extraction, and you know, it was not particularly safe to be not only Jewish but also a foreign Jew in Germany in the 1930s. There's a bunch of stuff going on in her personal life at this time, which I don't want to get into because it's not relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, Suffice to say, she did not stay in Germany and she did not stay in Europe. She, in fact, eventually made her way to America, specifically in 1937 to Hollywood and MGM Studios. It's round about this point that young... Hedvig Keisler takes on the name that she would become much better known by. Hedvig became Hedy and Keisler was dropped altogether. She instead adopted 
the last name Lamar uh, after the silent film star Barbara Lamar, uh, which was on the suggestion of uh, Louis B. Mayer's wife, who was a fan of Barbara Lamar. She made it finally to Hollywood in 1938, and he began promoting her as the world's most beautiful woman. Because, of course, we're talking about Hedy Lamar, who was a huge, huge film star throughout the 30s and 40s in Hollywood. And why am I talking to you about Hedy Lamar? Yeah, she is a movie star, sure. Uh, she was in Boomtown with Clark Gable. Uh, she was with uh, in Come Live With Me in with James Stewart. She was in Ziegfeed Girl with James Stewart, uh, alongside Judy Garland and Lana Turner. Yeah, she's a huge movie star. But why am I talking about her as a wonderful woman of science? Well, I'm talking about her as a wonderful woman of science because you can do more than one thing, you know. One of the things I admire about the career of Hedy Lamarr is that she demonstrates rather brilliantly that you can be rather brilliant at more than one thing. We don't all have to sit in one little box. We can be many things. And Lamar's career really does illustrate that. Because, yes, she did all of that. She was in all of those movies with all of those movie stars. She won all of those awards. She won the hearts of so many. But she also liked making things. She had no formal training uh, and was yeah, pretty much self-taught, a tinkerer. If she'd been a man and British, she'd have had a shed. She was that kind of tinkerer. And she, you know, fiddled about with various hobbies and ideas. Uh, she came up with a traffic stoplight um, and a tablet that would dissolve in water to create a sort of fizzy drink, um, which Lamar herself said tasted like Alka-Seltzer and was not particularly successful. But it was during World War II she came up with the thing that made her name in science and engineering. Um, she read that the US Navy had been playing about working on radio-controlled torpedoes. I don't know where she read that. I would have thought that sort of thing would have been classified. But she found out about it, and she got to thinking about it, and she realised that an enemy might be able to jam the guidance system of such a radio-controlled torpedo and set it off course, which could be used to obviously protect the enemy ship that you're firing the torpedo at, but also potentially could be used to turn the torpedoes back on the ship that fired it. And she discussed this with her friend, the composer and pianist George Anthale. Um, and in that conversation, the idea was raised that a frequency hopping signal might prevent the torpedo's guidance system from being jammed or tracked because it would, as you know, the enemy wouldn't be able to lock onto it by the time they'd figured out what frequency was controlling the torpedo, the frequency would have changed. Now, Antile succeeded in synchronising a, a sort of tiny player piano mechanism with radio signals and sketched out the idea for a frequency hopping system, which was going to use um, that old-fashioned perforated paper tape you see in like 1960s films about computers. Um which then operated pneumatic controls. And this is, you know, a common technology in player pianos. This was, you know, well-known technology in the entertainment industry. 
Now, Antel was introduced to a guy called Samuel Stewart McCowan, who was a professor of radio ele- electrical engineering at Caltech. Uh, and Lamar then employed this guy for a year to actually develop the functionality. She also hired uh, a Los Angeles legal firm called uh, Lion and Lion to search for prior knowledge and to prepare the patent, which was granted to Hedy Lamar uh, under her married name of Hedy Keisler Markey. Uh, on the 11th of August 1942, it is in fact still extant. It's US patent 2,292,387. So there you go. But, and this is an important but, it was never used. The US Navy was talking about radio controlled torpedoes at this time. There is no record that they ever used them, and there is no record that Hedy Lamar's patent for the frequency hopping system was ever employed in any kind of military application at all, which, now I think about it, I have no problem with. As um, Wilf might have said on Doctor Who, don't say that like it's shameful. Because that frequency technology did find an application in the end, not for avoiding the jamming of radio-controlled torpedoes in a war, but much closer to home. In fact, it might be operating in your home right now because the Wi-Fi that is almost certainly in your house as you listen to this, you may even be using the Wi-Fi to listen to this, that uses the same kind of frequency hopping technology that Lamar developed. So there you go. Without Hedy Lamar, there would be no Wi-Fi. And actually, that's not true, is it? Somebody would have come up with something because Wi-Fi is great and everybody wanted it. But the point is, somebody else didn't come up with it. Hedy Lamar did. And I present her here as a wonderful woman of science because, as I say, she illustrates brilliantly that, first of all, not all geeks are unattractive with braces on their teeth. And as an unattractive geek who had braces on his teeth for quite a lot of his teenage years, I appreciate busting that stereotype. But also, it really is possible still to be a polymath. You can be very good at more than one thing. You can enjoy more than one thing. As a teacher, I often used to hear from kids who were not going to bother coming to comics club because they were really into science. And kids who were not going to bother coming to Rocket Club because, um, you know, they were more, they preferred acting. And so you can do both. You can do both. You don't have to choose. And Hedy Lamar symbolises that for me. And that for me is why she is a wonderful woman of science. So talk about Hedy Lamar to your friends. Maybe start by discussing her acting achievements. But don't forget to mention the Wi-Fi. And so we stride onwards and it is time to take a look at what is happening at the Geek Community Notice Board. The first thing I want to attract your attention to is this coming Sunday on, that's the 11th of December, at Geek Retreat on Oxford Street. You know the place, it's got a big purple frontage and it's full of geeks. It is, as I've mentioned before, a great place to go if you just want to meet up with some geeky people, have a bit of a chat, maybe have a coffee, maybe play some tabletop games. It's a very friendly, very welcoming, very safe space for geeks of all ages. 
this coming Sunday, they are throwing open their doors to a Christmas craft market. They're getting local crafters and artists in to show you their wares and maybe you could buy a few. They make, you know, some great Christmas gifts will be available. So go along and check that out. Take a look at Geek Retreat's social media presence on Facebook and Instagram for more information about all of that. Or if you're wandering down Oxford Street in Harrogate, just drop into Geek Retreat. Say hello. Tell them I sent you. Now, the following Sunday, it is the Geek Pub Quiz Christmas Quiz over at Major Tom's Social. And the day before that, on Saturday the 17th, yeah, 17th of December, it is the Geeky Kids Quiz at the Everyman Cinema, again, in Harrogate. So check out the Geek Pub Quiz social medias for more information on all of that. The Geek Pub Quizzes are always a spectacular time out, uh, whether that's the Kids Quiz in the afternoon or the original and best Geek Pub Quiz at Major Tom's of an evening. Helen and Steve are amazing hosts, as is Chris. The prizes are always great, and it's just it's just a good mix of people. It's what happens when you get loads of geeks in a room at the same time. It's just a friendly, lovely place. So if you've never been before, give it a go. If you've been before, then you know how amazing it is, and you probably don't need me to encourage you to go. So I commend all of that to you. I also just want to throw out again a mention for the Secret Lair over at Hornbeam Park, which is your place to go if you want to take up Dungeons & Dragons, whether you're experienced or a rank beginner. It doesn't matter. You can get yourself along there. Again, check out the Secret Lairs social medias on Facebook and Instagram. They are a membership organisation, but you can go as a guest. So check that out. Maybe give it a try. Honestly, if you've ever wondered whether D&D would be for you, the Secret Lair is the place to go and find out. Now, speaking personally, I love me some Dungeons & Dragons. I really, really do. And it's really nice to have a place where you can just go and play with like-minded people and you know, have a nice mix of experience. It's nice to have a, a couple of rookies in your party, just as it's nice to have an experienced DM, uh, maybe a couple of experts in your party. It's all good. And honestly, you really want to give it a go. D&D is the most spectacular fun. So that's the Geek Community Notice Board. If you have a geeky thing that you want to promote, just tell me. Uh, most of the stuff we promote tends to be in Harrogate because that's where we are. But we do have a listenership that goes beyond that. So if you are doing something geeky elsewhere in the country or indeed the world, I'm still happy to promote it. Just let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to go. For all of that, uh, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is also the place to go if you've got suggestions for anything you'd like to see discussed on the show and any other comments that you have. It's also the place to go if you can help me with something. See, I have a question. I am not an artist, but I am beginning to see on the social medias various people using what is being called AI art applications, uh, which basically uses computer technology. Uh, it's, it's a big database, if we're honest, to generate original, and that's in heavy air quotes, images based on prompts that are put into this sort of algorithm thingamajiggy, which then produce 
art. Again, in heavy air quotes. Now, the proponents of this say that this is democratising art, that people who can't draw can now produce art for themselves. And right now, I don't buy it because the art that is being used by the algorithms to develop the new art, in heavy air quotes, that's that's art that somebody else has made. All this AI is doing, is, as far as I can see, is um, taking, taking the prompt that it's given, looking for images that align with those prompts, and then smashing those images together. Now, fair enough, that's fine. I, I'm not here to say that that's not a not a thing, you know, not, not a valid thing to do. I am here to say that what about the artists that generated the original images? People who haven't put the effort and time into learning how to make art can suddenly just get a computer to do it by nicking the, the work of the people who did put in that effort and time to develop the skills to generate the art. Will we find ourselves in a position where nobody pays for art anymore? Nobody pays artists anymore? That would mean nobody makes original art anymore. And we'll be left with art aggregators just aggregating previously aggregated images. And everything will become significantly less diverse and increasingly soulless. Now, as I say, I'm not an artist and I'm not a tech guy, not really. So I'm interested if anybody has any thoughts on this. If you're an artist and you have a view, I'd like to know what it is. If you use AI art generating software and you have a view, I'd like to know what it is. Um, I'd certainly like to know how anyone can defend stealing somebody else's intellectual property, which is, make no mistake, what is happening. That's definitely happening. Uh, and if you've got ideas about how we stop that happening, how we can have AI art that doesn't steal from actual artists, I'm interested to hear that too. I I don't have a completely open mind on this. I sort of know what I think already, but I am happy to be told I'm wrong. So AI art, if you've got any view at all, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is where you can tell me what it is. But now, with regret, we are beginning to run out of time. We will be back next week with, hopefully, more on Artemis. Uh, she should be home by then. So, yeah, hopefully we'll have lots of good news about that. And more geeky space news, more geeky news news. And, you know, all of the other geeky, wonderful nonsense you've come to expect from Geeking with Destination Venus. We'll certainly have another wonderful woman of science for you, and I might, might, have watched the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special by then, and have a review of that for you too. But whatever's happening, you all have yourselves a great week. We will see you, same time, same channel, same device, next next time. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else. Look forward to Christmas, stay sane, but above all else... Stay geeky. We'll see you very soon. Yes, I'm just vamping for the last 15 seconds because everybody hates dead air. There we go. Bye. (laughs)